Hello, Autism One Radio listeners, and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Parent-Physician Partnership for Healing Our Children. My name is Lisa Hunter Ryden, and I'm the mother of a son who's been recovering from a neuroimmune disorder with autistic symptoms under the care of Dr. Kendall Stewart. Dr. Stewart has previously introduced us to a concept named the Coordinated Care Model, for which the parent-physician team work together in the journey to heal our children. This requires ongoing communication, and as a parent, I feel it's my responsibility to keep good detailed records of my son's progress from home, school, and therapist so that Dr. Stewart can provide the most customized treatment protocol for him. Our past show on pathogenic infections caused quite a few questions about viruses in particular, which is something we have been managing in my son for a while. Therefore, the topic for today's show will be viruses. Hello, Dr. Stewart. Hi, Lisa. How are you today? Very good. Thank you. Good. So, Dr. Stewart, um, we've been down the virus path before with Jake, um, and it's been um, it's been something that I've taken a lot of interest in because we've successfully treated him with viruses, and uh, the antivirals have been very effective in helping him speech and get a lot of his function back, his cognitive function. Um, one of the one of the areas that um, I think parents don't really understand is that. Um, the kids, our kids have viruses for a reason. It's because they have immune dysfunction. And I didn't understand that until we came to see you back in 2007 because Jake was really the child that was never sick. He right. never had any outward symptoms. Right. Well, um, Lisa, the, the viruses are a really controversial um, topic in uh, spectrum disorders in general because we um, have so poor of an understanding about the neurotrophic viruses, that is the viruses that infect the nervous system. Um, one of the biggest facets that people have to get over is that most of the viruses that are truly inside the nervous system are inside the nervous system on purpose, and that's to avoid the immune system detection. And so the methods for us checking them, especially in blood testing, uh, is counterintuitive because we're not going to be able to see or quantify them in blood. Now, doctors always try to, and I can't tell you how many people come in with HHV-6 and titers and Epstein-Barr titers and all that kind of stuff. And I will tell you that titers are fine if you really want to prove that there's truly viruses in the community Mm -hmm. and that kids actually do get viruses. But what we really want to know is what is the virus uh, or group of viruses that are introduced into our kids or our kids acquire um, doing to keep them in a non-developmental state. And that is really something that uh, you have to kind of understand. The antivirals themselves, if you're gonna treat them, uh, one, have to be targeted fairly specifically. Uh, Two, uh, they can't cure anything Mm -hmm. by themselves. And three, uh, they are never gonna eradicate viruses. Okay, so we are talking about three concepts that I think we ought to walk through that most people, including most doctors, really don't understand because we're so used to medicines like antibiotics Mm -hmm. or antifungals that have a chance at actually eradicating whatever you're after. Right. So so can I stop you there? I have a question. Um, Because when we first came to you in 2007, we had been to another clinic that did test Jake for all the viral titers. Sure. And I came to you and said, look, he's got three viruses. He's got HHV6 and EBV and varicella Mm -hmm. and MMR, I think. And you said, well, yes, because he has immunity to all of those Mm -hmm. viruses, right? Sure. You you want a positive titer in these kids. Sure. Well, you got it because you vaccinated them. Right. And then my next question was, so how do we really know what viruses Jake has? Right, and the answer to how we really know is that when we were looking at adults who had malfunctioning nerves, and so the method that we use as um, nerve surgeons is that we have to have a reason to understand from an objective test why either the functional status of that nerve, whether it's working or not working, and whether it's ever going to have the chance of healing or not. And so when most doctors are just looking at titers, you cannot use a titer to tell when you the virus is truly active, when it's not active. You can't really tell when you're done killing enough of it and mm-hmm. when you should get off the antiviral. And really just putting people on Valtrex or uh, other antivirals indiscriminately is just not the way to do it, in my opinion. And that's a little bit in vogue now from yes, what I understand. Sure. Thank goodness it's finally in vogue because it was completely <laughs> out of vogue uh, 10 years ago when I started uh, being involved in this world. So um, what happened when we started looking at adults and taking biopsies and these uh, nerves that were not functioning well, um, we actually started uh, seeing, which is something that was not unique, uh, 
Um, there are certain viral syndromes of which we have to operate on, and many times when we take a biopsy of those nerves that are malfunctioning, we do find varicella zoster, and that's very well known in cranial nerves. And we also have found evidence that measles probably does involve this, uh, this situation, and rubella certainly can involve nervous system structures. Now, the reason those viruses are so, so much of an issue is that when you get vaccinated or acquire these viruses, they do go and infect everybody's nerves, okay? The problem is if your immune system is healthy, then you will suppress that nerve, or excuse me, suppress that virus. Those viruses will become dormant inside the nerve and really not interfere development at all. What I will tell you though in children who have immune dysregulation is when you introduce or acquire those viruses, they have incredibly clever ways to recognize that the immune system is not functioning right, and then they will proceed to continue to multiply. And what they do is instead of staying dormant within the nerve itself, they actually jump into the myelin layer or the, the glial cell. They divide very rapidly and then jump back in that nerve to hide from the immune system, and the immune system tries to attack it and causes inflammation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the big topics in spectrum disorders these days is how can we tell where there's neural inflammation? Well, it's real easy. <laughs> you just, you have to have a test, mm-hmm. okay? And there's not going to be a perfect blood biomarker, no matter how hard you look, to tell you about nerve inflammation. Now, we have biomarkers that we've used from quite some time that are that are abnormal and really, really severe inflammatory diseases. And like, those are things, um, if I can stop you there, those are things like that I've heard about uh, for testing, Jake, uh, neoptrin, uh, CRP, some of the inflammatory blood yeah, markers, right? Myelin basic protein is probably the most common. Okay. Neoptrin is a fairly new one, uh, mm-hmm. nonspecific. Um, but the idea is is that those biomarkers are are not acute enough for you to really be able to tell what's going on. So they can just tell you like a general inflammatory state. Has it been inflamed in the last few months or has it not? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the issue that we had to get over, and I really had to do some education, I think I'm still doing that, is in adult medicine, uh, checking biomarkers and deciding to operate on somebody who has inflammation is not done by checking blood. It's done by checking the nerve. Mm -hmm. We actually have tests that... We call the sensory view, which actually can visualize through reflexes and through objective testing, uh, real-time status, I mean immediate status of whether there's inflammation in the nervous system or not. Because we usually test the ear and the reflexes affiliated with that because most of these kids have vestibular issues Mm -hmm. and cochlear issues. And uh, so we use that reflex because it's non-invasive and we use the cochlea because it is a nervous system structure and it's so sensitive that when you see inflammatory patterns there, you can assume there's inflammation in the nervous system. From, but not necessarily, at that time you don't necessarily know what from which virus, you're just no. assuming it's from the neurotrophic viruses, Well, right? no, I can tell you is when we've seen those patterns in adults and actually done biopsies, it's fairly well recognized that we, do, we are dealing with typically varicella and the measles family. Okay, which are the RNA viruses. Correct. So what we typically do um, in order to decide on an antiviral treatment protocol for these children is to really look at their vaccine history. Have these viruses been introduced? And unfortunately, the varicella and the MMR uh, vaccines are live viruses. So you're infecting uh, a true infective agent, not just a piece of it. And Jake got those vaccines on one day. Both oh, yeah. of them on the same Very day. Typical. And we saw regression pretty quickly after that. Right. And that's how it's recommended. Mm-hmm. They're all on one day. And so you're giving five live viruses, excuse me, four live viruses altogether on one day. So you're not making the child sick with one virus. You're making them sick with four viruses and all in, on the same day. normal kids, they're probably fine, right? Because they suppress that. No, that's not the, the way I want you to think about it because <laughs> okay. it's kind of a new concept. Anybody that catches varicella naturally or is vaccinated or catches measles or rubella naturally or is vaccinated, it attacks everybody's nerves. And we will get inflammation immediately for the next couple of days in everybody's nerves. Now here's the difference. This is really important. The difference is not in the damage. It's in the fact that you can't heal back from the infection. Okay. So once you inflame something, 
children who have a normal methylation process or have no immune dysregulation and have proper nutritional delivery, they will heal rapidly back from that inflammatory state because the virus does get suppressed and you have the proper healing mechanisms in place. Mm -hmm. When you have a child who is prone to developing neuroimmune uh, abnormalities, then you have a child who, for whatever reason, which is becoming a narrower and narrow focus of reasons, uh, has an immune system that is incapable of suppressing the virus, but also, very important, incapable of actually healing the nerves at a rapid pace back to normal. Okay. Okay. So that's why methylation plays such a big role, because if you don't have folic acid in a baby, when you're well, even in utero, you're going to get spina bifida because you can't develop that nervous system. What if the mom is being religious and taking her 400 mcgs of folic acid every day while she's pregnant, which is the minimum recommended daily allowance, and the mom is not has a methylation disorder and is not able to pass it to the baby? Correct. Is that possible? Absolutely. Because I um, I'm still ruling out, and you know I'm I'm not a patient yet, but. I'm still ruling out that maybe I have a methylation pathway disorder that I may have given. To right. Jay. Well, the women who are pregnant and typically have fairly severe methylation dysfunction usually have multiple miscarriages okay. because the methylation dysfunction also limits the production of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that regulates hormones. And so if you're a woman that tends to run low progesterones during your pregnancy and um, uh, maybe spot through or don't uh, support the fetus is health is in a healthy state. Um, we have uh, I probably have ten people at, ten pregnant women at, currently that are on the methylated B vitamins and knock on wood none of them has miscarried mm -hmm. none of them is excuse me none of them have miscarried uh, and all of these women have a previous history of multiple miscarriages. Okay, so what if there's a viral so the, infection? Oh, in the that's pregnant a big mom? problem. In fact, I saw one the other day, um, just earlier this week, of a child that was non-vaccinated, autistic, and that's another important fact. You got to understand that the the oxidative stress damage on the um, nervous system does not have to come from a vaccine. Now, without a doubt, that can create the most likely cause of uh, significant oxidative stress on the nervous system itself. But I've seen it happen from infections in utero. I've seen it happen from surgical procedures early in life. I've seen it happen from burns. I've seen it happen from trauma. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen from probably the best we could uh, um, toxic exposure. But any of those things, it's really the really important thing to understand is that the damage can occur any way that it has. The problem is is that without the immune regulation, the viruses cause a big problem, mm -hmm. but with the <clears throat> folinic acid and methyl B12 uh, deficiency, you really are put at a disadvantage for healing back out of that damage. Okay, I have a question on uh, a phrase. I'm gonna just um, try to decipher some of your big words, okay, for our audience. <laughs> okay. I know you use them every day, but some of us haven't heard them before. So um, we've t when we first saw you, you talked about the herpetic family of viruses, sure. specifically with Jake. But then I also heard you mention the neurotrophic. So are herpetic neurotrophic because yes. they damage neurotrophic. the nerve? Well, it means that they live inside of nerves. They live inside the nerve. Okay. Yeah, so one of our recent neurotrophic viruses appears to be the H1N1. Mm -hmm. It's just not as, uh, it's much more picky about its nerves. It doesn't just live in anybody's house, you know. Okay. The herpes family in particular and the measles family tend to prefer just about any nerve in the body. Okay. There they don't, they, they'll slum and they'll eat high dollar. They don't care where they go. Uh, H1N1 appears to have a specific targeted focus of dopamine uh, producing nerves. And so um, any virus is neurotrophic if it has a propensity to infect nerves. Okay, and then you mentioned something about how, um, you know, we we can all get the inflammatory state from being exposed to a virus, but then we'll, our nerves will suppress that. I know um, I know one mom that has had chronic herpes infection sure. for many years, and she said it's manageable unless she has stress in her life, and sure. then the stress kind of activates the infection all over again. And I know that's similar with shingles and some other sure. viral infections. So you can can you explain how that works? Yeah. Um, well, the problem with chronic infection from viruses from an immune dysfunction is that you're chronically irritating the nerve. And what I mean by that, I usually use an analogy of a knee 
if you hurt your knee and it swells up, but you decide you're not going to rest it and you keep walking on it and stay swollen, uh, what's the chance of that knee healing? So the problem and why antivirals are so important in the process of uh, healing these children is because if the if you suspect that the vaccinations initiated any problem with your child, and you can link it to that, um, and because viruses are the major component that is infecting the nervous system itself, then you have to address the viruses or you cannot or you have not taken the first step toward healing the nerve. You cannot heal it with continuing inflammation. You can do everything right. You can support methylation and you can give great nutrition and you can give all of these supplements, but if you don't stop the inflammation mm -hmm. and that nerve from the virus, you have not taken the first step and you will fail. So I can give you great nutrition and great rehab, but if you keep walking on your knee and it stays swollen, <clears throat> it will not heal. And so antivirals are really the measure. All they are is their purpose that. is to reduce the inflammatory capability, or excuse me, the inflammatory process in the nervous system. They are not the cure. Right, and my understanding from my re limited research on these is that they really coat the protein receptors so that the viruses don't replicate. They don't necessarily kill the viruses. Yeah, is that's, that correct? that's the RNA viruses. Okay. Yeah, the DNA viruses, we interrupt the division of the DNA. Mm -hmm. So we, we, catch the, uh, we catch the virus dividing and stick it together. Okay, so does that mean with the antivirals you don't necessarily have to worry about die-off reactions? Typically not. Now, viruses are little bitty creatures mm -hmm. uh, compared to a big old massive yeast cell. Right. Okay, and so you rupture a big old massive yeast cell and all that uh, contents inside is very stimulating to the immune system, and so you'll see Herxheimer's reactions from yeast. Viruses, you usually don't because the immune system really has to encapsulate or, mm -hmm. or eat is a good word, eat the virus, mm -hmm. and then digest it internally in the macrophage. That's interesting. So you really, you kind of isolate it from the immune system to a certain degree. And um, some people have heard this story before, but um, I'll say it again. Um, and that is when we started antivirals with Jake, it was three months before he really started seeing, uh, we started seeing improvement, which is probably longer than some parents. Uh, some parents say they start antivirals and two weeks later their kids are doing great. But not the case with us. We actually had some regression. And the way you explained it at the time, um, and hopefully this will be helpful for our audience, is that Jake, we were helping Jake. We were reducing inflammation. It's just the brain doesn't like change. Yeah, the brain doesn't like change. So the, the hardest part without, um, without having an objective measure like the sensory view, um, if you can't see what you're doing, I don't know how you do it. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I feel... You know, I feel bad for the Dan doctors who are having to treat these people without some quantification of how the nervous system is doing because the brain doesn't like change. You can become just as symptomatic from a nerve that's healing and getting a lot better and sending a lot more information to the brain than it was as you can from a nerve staying unhealthy. Well, and that's a good point because I know parents that are asking, well, how long are we going to have to stay on Valtrex? And not even really the doctors know because they don't really know when the start and the stop point should be. Well, how can you tell? Right. They, they kind of base it on, well, when the child starts getting better, we'll stop the Valtrex. But then that's where you get a lot of the parents saying, I don't want my child to be on Valtrex for sure. five years. So what you, you know, I had a lot of pushback back when I started Valtrex and antivirals in these kids. And I'll probably, I'm probably the doctor now that takes them off the earliest because I have yep. a way, a method to, to see when we're pretty much done. As soon as you stop that inflammation, whether the nerve's completely healed or not, you don't need to be on them anymore. Not consistently mm -hmm. and you've also got to understand that um, you know viruses are tricky uh, all opportunists whether it's yeast or viruses or anything are always wanting to find a little opportunity to slip back in there and do their thing again mm -hmm. so really the key to being able to get off of antivirals fast which was not something I knew two or three years ago I'd say three or four years ago is if you don't fix the immune system at the same time you're killing viruses you're never going to be done Right, because those will come right back. Those will come right back, yeah. Well, so let me ask you, um, a lot of parents that are nervous about prescription antivirals mm -hmm. are doing um, herbal or sure. more natural antivirals. Some of the things I've heard in the, on the message boards is olive leaf extract, elderberry, oil of oregano. Um, are those helpful? Those don't work very well. Okay. Not in my hands. I, I really prefer if we're going to look at those. I can't say that they're not helpful. I can tell you I've tried them all. My, the, the ones that are most successful for me really are lactoferrin, monolaurin mm -hmm. and also um, 
well, or loricide and whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Those two are the major, the major agents that give me more benefit from an antiviral perspective. Okay. Well, so, and also with the, I'm sorry, with the natural antivirals, you probably don't know if you're targeting DNA or RNA viruses either, yeah, right? Yeah, no clue. Most of them are DNA antivirals. And okay. The problem is they really don't kill the measles, rubella, uh, flu family very well. Okay. So you can, what I tell people who are, um, not comfortable with prescription drugs, and there is a genetic uh, subgroup of people of European descent in particular, um, most probably Celtic descent people, um, that are just hypersensitive to prescription medicines. They just have what we call iatrogenic responses, you know, responses that are not appropriate or opposite to what you're intending. Now, with antivirals, we're usually very lucky that we don't see a lot of those, but uh, with those particular agents, but if they're not comfortable, we'll use we'll use uh, um, you know natural antivirals, and we'll measure them and see how effective they are. Okay. So and if they're not effective, I'll probably try my best to convince you. Let's try a little bit um, a little bit different approach. Now, theoretically, and this is only theory because it's not really the way I like to do it because it takes too long. You don't even have to use antivirals. You could theoretically just strengthen the immune system. Eventually, the immune system would take advantage of the, or take over and and take this um, virus, put it back in its place, and probably overcome it. But without with antivirals and immune modification at the same time, I do. I'm much more effective at uh, the time frame that most people would desire to see. Okay. So with that, um, I did some safety research on Valtrex the first time I looked into it Mm -hmm. and did find in adults it's the only drug that's FDA cleared for lifelong use for people that have chronic infections. So um, that made me feel a little more secured, although, you know, it's still still not, there isn't a lot of safety studies on children, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the questions I have is, um, and we've talked about this before in our past show on pathogens, is is Valtrex, or are some of the viruses resistant to Valtrex, or are we worried about that? Well, everybody's been worried about that because we know that most agents become resistant. And there is some talk, uh, mainly out of California, that um, we may have up to 1% or 2% of herpes family viruses resistant. Mm-hmm. But once again, um, you're missing the point. The Valtrex is not curative. Right. I don't care if if they are resistant necessarily. And I don't want a whole group of them resistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I have a few resistant, big deal, because the cure is really to fix the immune system and put the virus back into its hibernated state. Right. You're never going to eradicate viruses. Mm-hmm. It just won't happen. No, we don't live in a bubble. No, sorry. Well, and then with, you know, if anyone's been following the H1N1, there's a lot of discussion now that there's variants within the N1. And I know you, you love to talk about this, so I'm just oh, going to turn it over to you because we suspect <laughs> that Jake had the H1N1 or something similar around Thanksgiving that we initially thought was pandas because it set off a lot of ticks. And we did the zithromycin because we'd seen pandas before in Jake. Sure. Um, but then now, you know, two weeks later, we thought, okay, the ticks are back. We suspected it was virus and a viral component. So if you can explain about H1N1 and related variants to that. Well, well, what I can do for you is give you my clinical experience, unfortunately, with probably upwards of a 1,000 patients um, with immune dysregulation and, uh, you know, acquisition of the H1N1 virus. Um, What's really unique is back in um, February of 2008, uh, we started seeing some patterns on our sensory view testing that did not make sense. And what I mean by that is that when herpes or measles reactivates in the, the, the nervous system, it's non-discriminated. It reactivates everywhere. So we see changes in the ear, in the nerves, in the sensory integration. And you see it's very obvious that a body-wide virus has decided to have a party again. (laughs) Um, But what we were seeing back in February of 2008 before we knew what this was is we were seeing changes in some parts of the test but not others and the changes we were seeing was really in the dopamine based nerves. Mm -hmm. So we were seeing kids who were sensory integrating but their dopamine markers or their dopamine uh, real-time function as we can measure in the system was uh, was not functional. 
and that would make the child very dramatically um, aggressive, uh, dramatically, frankly, uh, possibly schizophrenic is how you might, psychotic is how you might describe it. Um, also make their short-term memory and concentration and sleep patterns just and eye movements kind of just check out, mm -hmm. okay, very acutely. So at the time we thought it was actually a virus traveling with flu because it was flu season. And I thought it was some new virus because we had never seen pandemic flu. The last pandemic flu where not everybody died like they mm -hmm. did in the the swine flu, excuse me, in the, the bird flu, mm -hmm. avian flu, um, was 1978, a minor outbreak break here in America that was just minor compared to this. And these kids, some of them ran fevers and some of them didn't. Uh, but that shouldn't surprise us because with immune dysregulation, it doesn't mean you're really going to react. You're not going to react to the agent. And then all of a sudden... After we'd seen that for a few months, and we learned that Tamiflu would treat it, mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden we heard about the swine flu. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it made sense. And what had happened is because there had been such a large, long time between pandemic flus in the United States, we just don't know jack about it. And so the um, pandemic flu, because it's an N1 designation, there have been, from what I know, and, and you can't quote me precisely on this, but I do know the 1978 outbreak was an N1. I do know the 1918 Spanish flu was more than likely an N1. And Dr. Menninger of Menninger Clinic frame uh, wrote a paper that was republished by JAMA in early 2009 where he went back two years later after the Spanish flu outbreak and revisited uh, Spain and found out that 30% of the survivors developed some schizophreniform uh, type of uh, behavior. Now that could be viewed in today's medicine as frank schizophrenia or bipolar or depression. I don't mm -hmm. really know exactly what that meant, but it really kind of solidified for me in 2009, that, or January of 2009, with the, reading that article, that we that we were dealing with something that was truly neurotrophic. And so we've been dealing with it very aggressively this year. Um, it will damage dopamine nerves, which is a disaster for these kids because if you have a methylation dysfunction, which a large majority of these kids <clears throat> do, then you can't make enough dopamine anyway. And if you can't make enough dopamine anyway and then you got a virus that's attacking the dopamine nerves, you got a double whammy. So if you see your child doing some really funny things. Which we did with right, Jake around and Thanksgiving. You and you see ticks show up. Because when you start messing with dopamine, if you lower dopamine, you're going to get a child that checks out on you emotionally and cognitively, but you're also going to see a drop in their seizure threshold. You're going to see mm -hmm. a drop in their tick threshold. Yeah. And so you'll see these behaviors sometimes coming through that you really haven't witnessed before. Yeah, this was the all-time worst season this past holiday season for Jake's ticks. We've had them before very mild. Um, but it was really frightening because I called your office in hysteria one day. I know I talked to the nurse who probably <laughs> was just wondering what was going on. But uh, we were seeing ticks about every five seconds. Right. And it, was, it looked like a seizure. Sure. In fact, the school nurse called and said, I think Jake's having a seizure. You sure. need to pick him up. And we did bring him in to see you. And uh, you said it wasn't a seizure. It, these were ticks. And mm -hmm. I had never seen them with that, that sudden onset and then that frequently. And this explains right. a lot because, we, you know, for two days – Prior to all this onset, he was extremely lethargic, just laying on the couch, and that is not my son. So the kid that's never sick was here all of a sudden very tired and just kind of lethargic. So, right. And we had all been had various viral things going on. So just makes me wonder then, did he have that at that onset? And then, you know, like you said, the low dopamine triggered the ticks, which were still well, really Well, sure, and I'll with. tell you, you know, this is the whole issue with pandas. I want to I wanna kind of reinforce that um, not all ticks is – is pandas and we certainly will see titers in kids that are very very high who do not have ticks but uh, do have other forms of uh, social abnormal behavior socially abnormal behavior and certainly uh, kids that are fairly normal who have high titers and mm -hmm. don't have anything that's wrong with them usually in siblings now the dopamine plays a big issue because if you have mild pandas with titers and your dopamine's high, you'll never see a tick. Hmm. Okay, because you're, you've got a high threshold. Mm -hmm. You can't set it off. Dopamine's a modulator. It keeps everything calm and relaxed and smooth. Mm -hmm. But when you drop dopamine either acutely from lots of different sources, um, 
then you really can see underlying issues that were probably under there. They were just kind of covered up in the, the way that the brain likes to do it. And you might uncover things that you didn't quite expect. So, And, and some of the, I was reading on Tourette's, because of course the first thing I thought when I sure. saw these ticks was he was having an onset of Tourette's, sure. which is not uncommon in the autistic population. And many of the um, prescription medications for Tourette's <laughs> raise dopamine levels. Yeah, they're anti-seizure medicines or, or they're dopamine modulators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the problem is if you got a methylation dysfunction and you can't make enough dopamine, it's like trying to squeeze a whole uh, jug of orange juice out of a single orange. You just can't do it. So then is it possible to raise dopamine? And yeah. how do we do it? So the way we raise dopamine and um, is basically um, you have to have tyrosine, the amino acid. You have to have folinic acid or methylfolate. Not folinic proper, but methylfolate. And you have to then um, have an environment inside the brain that's uh, conducive to making dopamine. Um, and then once you make dopamine, uh, the folinic acid being, or methylfolate being deficient in many of these kids with methylation dysfunction, and having the functional methyl um, or folate trap, which is uh, low homocysteine, um, abnormality, um, then these kids really become folic acid deficient and can't make enough dopamine. So if we put the methylfolate back into them, and you know, my, my personal feelings on that uh, from a clinical perspective is it doesn't happen orally. You, mm -hmm. can't, you can't get enough into a child with a, with a homocysteine below five from an oral or even a transdermal method to overcome the folate trap issue. Um, and you have tyrosine on board, you will make more dopamine and that's what the outcome we see. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the methyl, the methylation dysfunction uh, will answer so many things that everybody's talked about. I mean, you answer the issue with toxic clearance and heavy metal clearance. You answer the issue with epigenetics and DNA. And you answer the issues with dopamine uh, deficiency. And you answer the issue on T-cell dysfunction. And so to me, it is the primary issue. And so uh, clinically, that's what we... Um, we address most heavily. So we're going to start Jake back on the methylfolate. Absolutely. Um, and see you again in a couple weeks um, as our next steps. And so um, I'm looking forward to seeing how the ticks improve because it, it is very scary to watch. And um, I, I can tell you on the message boards I've been on, there's a lot of ticks going around right now. So I'm really glad you clarified that. Don't just immediately assume it's pandas because a lot of parents are running out saying, I need antibiotics, it's pandas. Right, and um, you know the nice thing is that some kids do have pandas, so if you put them on a low-dose amoxicillin or Zithromax or whatever your agent of choice is, um, the kids will get better because you're also controlling some other inflammatory stimulant. Mm -hmm. But uh, it doesn't mean they're all going to get well. Right. Uh, at least that's in our hands. Well, and that's what we saw. We saw the ticks go away about the first week on the Zithromax, and then they came back, and they were with a vengeance. So that's when I called and said, I, I know we need to be on these long-term, you know, because I've studied on pandas you need to be on long-term antibiotics but I said this is just does not seem right well and let me add to that um, when you're dealing with a true pandas phenomenon I think that I can um, convince the experts um, in pandas that you need to treat it with an antibiotic but you also need to treat the dopamine deficiency mm -hmm. at the same time and you'll be much more successful at reversing the tick disorder because if you only address one thing which is the in, the infection or the the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, um, colonization of the uh, tonsillar tissue or the, you know, uh, the adenoids, et cetera, with the streptococcus infection, then you clearly have only addressed half the issue. Okay, well, that's great to know. Um, I do have a question from, <clears throat> excuse me, a friend of mine, as well as <coughs> one of your. Sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Um, he wants to know about the XMRV virus okay. and how it relates to autism. So. <laughs> you know how much I've heard about this virus? First of all, I want to say that it does not surprise me that there's an XMRV virus. <laughs> uh, if you think that's the last one we're going to find, you're out of your mind. It's uh, We are going to keep finding more and more and more and more and more and more <laughs> viruses. And so let me be on the record of says, saying that. Um, the XMRV virus is a retrovirus. Um, the only two other retroviruses that we know infect humans uh, is the HIV virus 
and also, or HTLV, or however you want to describe that virus, and also the T-cell murine uh, virus, um, which tends to cause uh, leukemia-like syndromes. Um, what is really unique about the XMRV, because it's a retrovirus, is it's just about impossible to kill with an antiviral. Well, this dad specifically asked me, would it be possible that XMRV could be in a vaccine? And the vaccine manufacturer didn't know it. The answer to that is very likely. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest question I would say. Now, I think we'll probably find out there's lots of infectious agents. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that answer um, very likely. Uh, if not, it might be passed from the parent to the child uh, and vice versa. Who knows where it really comes from? And if you're not aware of a virus, how are you ever going to check for it? Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is is that when you're dealing with a therapeutic approach to that, I think we're going to find out that the XMRV virus is just like any other virus that's an opportunist. That's going to be much more... Um, concentrated in people with immune dysregulation because I know it was found in prostate cancer Mm -hmm. Uh, that's where it was initially found and and being in chronic fatigue uh, by definition those people are immune dysregulated and so uh, it does not surprise me one bit now I don't think we need to be frightened of it I don't think it's specifically going to turn out to be anything that causes uh, massive chronic inflammatory conditions it's just another sign a correlation that uh, um, that we see in people with immune dysregulation. So I don't know what it does yet, and I'm happy that people are now recognizing that viruses uh, are in the body, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that ugly, but yeah. uh, if you think we know about all these viruses, you're, you're just not going to be correct. I mean, I love to tell people that back in the mid to late 80s when I was doing a lot of uh, viral research in colon cancer actually back then um, from my best estimate there was probably five to seven hundred viruses that infected the human body known at that time and now here we are what 20 years later and I think there's about 1500 now that we know about so XMRV is only different because it's a retrovirus Mm -hmm. versus 27 types of herpes viruses and could be 28 tomorrow for all we know well and you know going back to hiv that's an interesting one because not all people infected with hiv get the outward expression of the disease Absolutely. and get aids so how many of us are running around with viruses and we're never sick we never have any issues but you know it just takes you know what is that tilt to our immune system that causes us to have the the disease associated with the virus well what i would tell you the retrovirus is really what people def- define as kind of an ancient virus. Uh, People believe that they were around for a lot longer than some of the other viral agents. And I think we're going to find out, and, you know, my philosophy, which certainly could be frowned on and I could be criticized for, that many cancers, in fact, I've been saying this for 20 years, I I believe that a majority of cancers are actually viral initiated. Mm -hmm. They carry genetic information into a cell that's abnormal. And then that cell replicates. And in some cases with retroviruses in particular, that genetic information is then replicated and passed on to your babies and their babies and their babies and their babies and becomes a part of the entire code. And so um, I think we're going to find out that we thought we really had this in the bag, understanding the whole genetic code and everything. I think that it's going to be changing every day. Absolutely. So, um, so I have a question for you too, um, related to this. Is um, you know Jake's metal heavy metals cleared significantly mm-hmm. with? But we were we were doing antivirals. We were doing the uh, methylate um, injections. We were doing a lot of things at the time. But I've heard uh, similar stories from other parents that antivirals helped the metals to clear. Yep. So can you help us understand the relationship? Oh, you're going to have to ask Dr. Yasko about that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I would tell you that, (laughs) um, and I meant that uh, affectionately, Um, Amy's Amy's knowledge base, um, which she's been the champion of using RNA antivirals or RNA viral clearance, uh, there are mechanisms that certain viral... um, antigens have to actually assist in the uh, 
the effective treatment of or effective clearance of metals without having to go to standardized chelation agents. There are viruses that probably possess in their genetic uh, regions abilities to either initiate um, uh, the production of uh, disulfhydro group uh, amino acids or also utilize those in their genome uh, to assist in the removal. And I think lactobacillus, uh, a common um, you know, a probiotic organism uh, has, and, and also the typical things with chlorella and other kelps and things like that, they just have natural ability uh, built into them to actually um, um, bind and uh, transport metals within them. And I, I jumped around to fungus and I jumped around to bacteria and then there's also viral components. So I would tell you that um, I used to really put a lot of thought into that. Um, now that I'm much more comfortable with the methylation dysfunction and reinitiating um, the clearance of the body's metals uh, and, and many kids by the um, reestablishment of their normal metallothionine production or metalloprotein production, then I, I don't think about it as much as I used to. Well, and I was reading recently that <clears throat> NAC can mm -hmm. actually be a much better chelator than the chelators themselves, like the EDTA and the DMPS, because it helps the body make more glutathione. So well, what are your, your thoughts around yeah. NAC? I think that's mm, incorrect. And the reason I think that's incorrect, certainly NAC is in the pathway to produce glutathione and, um, and metalloproteins. <clears throat> the problem is, and where I uh, differ in my thought concept, is that uh, NAC doesn't just magically convert to glutathione and magically convert to metalloproteins. It has to have something to convert it. And the problem in most of these things is not a lack of substrate, not a lack of the agent that you need, mm -hmm. but it's the lack of the enzyme or something to make the enzyme work that produces the conversion. Is that NADH? Uh, there's that a lot of them. Okay. <laughs> I try to remember the chart. Sure. So in general, it's kind of like I tell people, it's kind of like having a beautiful Lexus and putting gas and oil in it, and we've got it all full, but nobody turns the ignition, and we're all sitting there waiting for the car to drive. So we can add a lot of methyl donors. We can add a lot of different things into the pathway, but as you said, if it doesn't get turned on, Correct. Then now, you're just, it's donors, basically expensive supplements. Yeah, methyl right? donors are a little bit different than that, but certainly when you're talking about NAC and its conversion through the um, through the methionine cycle. Well, the re yeah, and the reason I said that too is um, I've also read glutathione, and a lot of parents are taking the transdermal and the liposomal and different sure. forms of glutathione has it, you know, maybe about a 15% absorption rate, whereas NAC is absorbed much better. But it doesn't mean NAC is going to turn into glutathione. Okay, great now, point. They'd like you to think about that. They'd like you to think that. Mm -hmm. So they can sell more? <clears throat> well, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say that because everybody's trying to help these babies. Yeah. Um, now, putting in glutathione makes a lot more sense because you are putting in the actual agent. Mm -hmm. um, well, if we can put in metalloproteins themselves, that's great. But those are very large proteins that have trouble being absorbed orally and mm -hmm. um, you know this is our big issue we can't just assume that we're stick since we're putting it in the mouth that it really is actually getting in the body going where it's supposed to go and doing what it's supposed to do right because clearly that process was messed up it doesn't mean that kids that are uh, autistic don't have any NAC in their body they got plenty of choline okay mm -hmm. not an enormous amount but it doesn't mean they don't have any it just yeah. means they are not making enough. And Jake had low cysteine, but I remember you telling me that that's, that fluctuates greatly with what you eat and what happens on that day. So it's not really a good marker for us, right? Right, and, you know, I would tell you that, I don't know, I'm, these are the kind of arguments that we get um, at different levels, and every doctor has his opinion on what really works good versus what really doesn't work good, and it's all dependent on the doctor's hands. I can tell you that I do supplement uh, in a broad spectrum supplement. Uh, we call it advanced neurotransmitter support, and that has methionine, taurine, choline, uh, N acetylcysteine, um, uh, trimethylglycine, and uh, inositol, and, and also the methyl B vitamins, including folinic acid, on purpose to try to address that issue. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are going to put in NAC, I think you have to then put in the methyl the methylated B vitamins 
And NAD is the big issue. It's a big issue for us uh, because it's not NADH. It's mm-hmm. NAD okay. that gets converted to NADH. Mm-hmm. So putting NADH in doesn't help you at all. So and that's the problem because NAD uh, without the H is a little unstable. Okay. <laughs> and um, we'd love to put that in there, but that really usually has to be produced. And when we have cofactors that need to be produced in the body, that becomes a very big issue. Right. So... You know, there's no perfect answer right now. All I can tell you in our experience is what works for us. And what, what I'm a really big champion of, and I think you'll, you'll find out, is that sometimes there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that my way is the only way to do it. And I think we shouldn't get uh, caught up in that. But all you want to do is see from outcomes how the babies are doing. And I think that's why you know, I'm very proud of our outcomes. I think if you talk to any of our patients, for the most part, they are. Well, that's why we're here. I understand. (laughs) From referrals. So for what works for me doesn't mean it's the only way to do it, and I certainly will never criticize a doctor Mm -hmm. or a person from doing that. I'm just telling you NAC alone or any of the basically the supplements alone are not going to work because there's so much cofactor interaction between each of the agents that we still are learning things about the methylation pathway and in general and I think as parents we would love to have our supplement cabinet be reduced and not have 100 or 50 well, now you know why I'm trying to combine everything yes absolutely because it just gets very expensive and sure. our kids don't swallow things readily most of us are having to we feel like we're uh, working in a drug lab we have to have our little mortar and pestle and our juices and our flavors to mm-hmm. make sure the kids are going to take it and uh, you know if everything could be in an injection that might be <laughs> be the answer but yeah, I know we've done a past show on supplements, so I don't want to talk about that anymore. But um, I'm just going to ask a real basic question because you have a much stronger background um, than a lot of people in this. And so what do you think God was thinking when he created viruses? <laughs> Why are they here and how do they fit I into the chain the, of life? Actually, I think it was the enemy that, that uh, was allowed <laughs> to do that myself. But. Uh... Because I'm just trying to wrap my brain around why do we have these viruses? Why have we had them for all these years? I and think why we'll find out. Illness? I think we'll find out. I guess it's a classic thing, and and if you're non-religious, please forgive this. But um, um, God's ways are not our ways, mm-hmm. and I think that the viruses uh, have some purpose because um, basically changing the genetic code across a population uh, is not only bringing bad things to some cells, but is also bringing good things to other cells. Mm-hmm. So the problem is we only notice the abnormal changes and don't really pay attention uh, to the really good changes. Because, you know, when you look at the population, everybody's got various things. And let's just take something like uh, physical size. We know that people are getting larger Mm -hmm. over time. And a lot of people say, oh, it's because we got better nutrition and we're paying attention to our health and everything. Well, it might be as simple as these viruses are actually mutating our cells or changing things that could actually be giving us some positive effects. So I think where there's always a positive, a negative effect, there's got to be a positive effect mm-hmm. too. And so um, I don't know. I just uh, the more uh, medicine I learn, the more I um, question. Mm-hmm. And I really think that uh, as a general group, um, doctors, we like to think we're very um, knowledgeable. I think we're pretty ignorant on a lot of subjects. And the more we learn, the more ignorant I feel. Well. That's what I what I really like about you is that every time we come in, you have something new. You have new research. You've done some some new investigation into another intervention, and you have something great to share with us. And you never stop learning. And as parents, we we don't ever feel that we stop learning either because this is such, such a journey for us. Well, if you don't think parents have not have brought me half this stuff, then obviously you know the network, the the. The physician parent partnership mm-hmm. is the network of new knowledge for these children. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not sitting here and I have this discussion with a lot, you know, I have very educated patients, parents in particular. And, you know, and a lot of them have their ideas and they're ingrained, and sometimes I'll try my best to convince them and they won't be convinced, uh, which is fine um, because it doesn't mean I'm always right either. But if you never try to change it, if you never do anything, different without risking the baby obviously right or risking the health then you're never going to succeed well i think this is an important message too from the standpoint that um, parents sometimes go down a path 
and they stay because the personality and they click with a doctor they stay with that doctor they stay with that intervention for months and months sometimes years but they don't see any measurable progress in the child and I think it's important that as much as you love your doctor um, and you know you 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 have that relationship intact you don't want to keep doing the same thing if it's not working you have to look right. at alternate strategies. And let me be very clear you know I shall share probably I probably guess between 25 to 30 percent of my patients with other well-known uh, spectrum disorder doctors you know whether they're Dan or non-Dan but you know it's you never will, will and you'll never find me discouraging a parent to to go and seek out other opinions because in essence when you do that you think you've really learned that you're you're done you're not going to learn anything new mm -hmm. and so what we're going to find out is if these methods work they're much more similar wherever you go the ones that really are clear on how they work they become a very consistent um a consistent pattern of information on the things that really are effective. Well, and also I think it's great that the physicians can communicate. And conferences like upcoming Autism One conference mm -hmm. in May in Chicago is a great um, collaboration between not only the parents and the physicians, but the, the world-leading physicians. Sure. And so I have to end our show with just announcing that you're going to be presenting there. Um, okay. And we're real excited about that. Mm -hmm. So um, if you haven't registered for Autism One, the website is www.autismone.org. You can register now. Um, Terry and Adaranga do a great job of planning and organizing this event. And I went last year, and it really was life-changing for me. I met all of the key opinion leaders in the field. I met some amazing parents. Um, there are travel scholarships, and there is also child care available um, at Autism One, which is different from a lot of other conferences. And I'm really honored that Dr. Stewart and I will be presenting on the prediction and prevention track. Um, so with that, I'm going to end our show, and uh, we look forward to having questions sent um, to questions at drkendallstewart.com, and we'll answer those on the next show. So thank you, Dr. Stewart. Thank you, Lisa. Good night.